Being crazy is a compliment. When somebody says you're crazy, that means you see things that other see. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring best-selling authors and innovative thought leaders. Everybody that's done something special in life, they've all been criticized for being crazy. It's a compliment. When somebody says you're crazy, you're nuts, I said, yes, I am. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at our conversations with client experience expert, Joey Coleman, renowned thought leader and media strategist, Ryan Holiday, elite performance coach, Tim Grover, and leadership expert, Kim Scott. Unfortunately, radical candor doesn't mean you'll never have to fire anyone. Uh, It just means that they won't be surprised when you fire them. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with Joey Coleman, award-winning speaker, client experience expert, and the best-selling author of How to Never Lose a Customer Again. For nearly 20 years, he's helped organizations retain their best clients and turn them into raving fans. But Joey wasn't born an expert on client experience. Believe it or not, he honed his communication skills in the courtroom as a trial attorney. I grew up the son of a criminal defense lawyer. So my first time at counsel's table, I was in sixth grade uh, when I was a federal court courier in an antitrust case that my dad was uh, trying and grew up basically in that environment. After going to college and law school, went straight from college to law school. After law school, was a criminal defense lawyer for a while, was a business consultant, went back to being a criminal defense lawyer, uh, and then worked uh, selling promotional products. I was a teacher in kind of the postgraduate level. I started and ran an ad agency. Uh, I had my stints with the Secret Service, with the White House, with the CIA, some amazing experiences. But the thread that ties all of these together, some people look at that and they're like, geez, this guy can't hold a job. But there's actually method to the madness. And that is in each of those positions, the way that you succeeded was by having a keen understanding of the human condition. Why do people do the things they do? And what can we do to convince them to do the things that we'd like them to do? So when I was a criminal defense lawyer, how can I convince them to find my guy not guilty? When I was selling promotional products, how can we create something that people will take home from a trade show and they'll remember us afterwards? When I was running my ad agency, how can we create a billboard that will get people to call a phone number or visit a website? In each of these positions, what I learned was even though they're completely different industries, completely different worlds with completely different desired outcomes, there's one common thread. The common thread is humans. 
And really what it allowed me to do is take the learnings from all of those and combine them into this discussion of customer experience and employee experience. You know, what are your customers doing? What are your employees doing? What would you like them to be doing? And how can we use different tools and techniques to increase the likelihood that our desired outcome actually happens? Now, I'm also somebody who's very passionate about customer experience and employee experience. And when people listen to the podcast and other podcasts, you know, generally whatever it is that we're speaking about is the most important thing, right? So if it's somebody's talking about branding, branding's the most important. If it's someone's talking about, you know, hiring, hiring's the most important. But when we talk about customer experience, I think there's few people that would argue that this is a good thing to have. But from your experience, how important is it in, in the grand scheme of things for a business? Well, what's fascinating, Michael, is you bring up a good point, whether we're thinking customer experience or client experience. And, you know, we might use those terms interchangeably here. At the end of the day, it's the humans you serve. I don't care whether you call them customers, clients, patients, audience members, kind of doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they're all humans. I think our goal should be not just to have this warm, touchy, oh, we feel good because we took care of them. That's fine. And that's often how client experience is pitched. Well, it's all about the emotion and the feeling. That makes perfect sense. And it's all about the bottom line as well. The research on this is absolutely staggering. The benefit of running a business that focuses on client experience versus running a business that doesn't. And where we see it show up the most and where my personal interest lies the most is what causes clients to leave And what's the difference between a client leaving and a client staying when it comes to your bottom line? And not only has this been proven out in my research, but research from Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, Bain & Company, Frederick Reicheld, the gentleman who came up with Net Promoter Score that many of your listeners I'm sure are familiar with or have heard about or may even have implemented in their firms. What the research shows is if we can get 5% of the people who would otherwise leave to stay, just 5%, That will increase your profits, not your revenues, your profits, 25 to 100%. Now, I understand some of your listeners may have been saying, wait a minute, the reason I went to law school is because I was told there would be no math, okay? That's why I went to law school. I was super excited about that. But the reality is the math is fairly simple, even though it sounds odd. And the math breaks down as follows. Number one, we need to recoup our marketing cost. If we don't keep a client long enough to recoup our marketing cost, we're in the hole for that client. Number two, the longer we keep a client, the more profitable that client becomes. Why? Well, because we recouped all of the onboarding cost in addition to the marketing cost. And as our team, whether that's our associates, our partners, our paralegals, our support staff, As they work more and more with a client, they become more efficient in dealing with that client's matters. So as a result, each additional hour they bill is a more profitable hour than the previous ones billed because we're already up to speed on the project, even though in most firms there isn't a sliding scale that, hey, the longer you've worked with us, the less you pay. That's not usually the way it works. So the moral of the story is if we can stretch a client for one more engagement or one more referral, the incremental impact on the bottom line of our business is incredible. Yeah. And, and what you mentioned, even at the tail end there, I think what, one thing that we've seen consistently across the most successful, fastest growing firms is the amount of advocacy that they get from other clients and other lawyers. In fact, the majority of like their best cases don't come from the direct marketing in, in many cases. It's oftentimes from word of mouth and referral. 
hundred percent. You know, Michael, I don't know about you. I have yet to meet a managing partner or a business owner who said to me, Joey, I don't need any more referrals. I'm all good. No, no more referrals, please. We're happy. You're right. Not only do referrals come in at a much lower cost in terms of a regular marketing engagement to get a client, but as a general rule, if you treat your clients well and you teach them how to make qualified referrals, the referrals that come in are pre-framed. The sales process is exponentially easier because they already know what to expect. They already know generally what it's going to cost them. And again, the profit per client increases, not to mention the word of mouth. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have people out there singing my praises, which let's be honest, in the legal profession, doesn't usually happen. Okay. There's a reason why there are more lawyer jokes than any other type of profession in our society, right? I think those jokes are symptomatic, if you will, of the lack of client experience that most people have when dealing with an attorney. Why do I mean, it, it was, we talk about the legal industry in particular. Obviously, you've worked across numerous industries, everything from, I think, NASA and Zappos, I mean, across the board. But it seems like, you know, particularly the legal industry, where do you find that most firms are lacking when it comes to, uh, you know, client experience? What I'm about to say, I say respectfully, okay? And I say this as one of you, all right? I'm a recovering attorney. My first step was admitting I had a problem. There were 11 steps after that. It worked out all right for me. But the moral of the story here is I think you spend three years in law school having it drilled into your head about how to build a case, how to do research, how to write a brief, how to make an argument. Why is it that we don't take a course in law school on the law school version of bedside manner? You know, we have no problem lambasting medical professionals and saying, how can you spend all this time in medical school learning all about how to treat people, but not learning anything about how to treat people? The same applies to lawyers. We don't take classes in law firm practice management. We don't take classes in how to manage our employees. We don't take classes in how to communicate with our clients other than ethics, which usually is a semester long, you have to take it in order to graduate. And there might be three or four cases in that entire semester where you talk about the client who didn't properly keep their client informed, you know, the lawyer who didn't do a good job communicating with their client, and that's it. And so we're taught what not to do, as opposed to being taught what to do. And then we get out into practice, and I don't know about you, but when I was in practice, it was very much the case that I was so busy running from courthouse to courthouse, doing filing to filing, you know, all this stuff that lots of times, and I'm not proud to say this, the client experience was on the back burner because I was trying to meet filing deadlines and pick juries and make sure everything was going well with the case that was in front of me, as opposed to maintaining the relationship with all the clients who I wasn't working on their case that day. The typical lawyer for context, I think the most recent research I've seen says that there's, they have somewhere between 40 and 60 clients at any given time from the day somebody signs a retainer agreement up to the resolution of their case. An individual lawyer on average in the United States, 40 to 60 clients. When I was practicing, we averaged 250 clients per lawyer. If you stop and look at the math on that, if I spent one day on each client, I couldn't cover all of them in a year, in the working days of a year. 
And so I think at the end of the day, what we're called on to do is think differently about the experiences we're creating for our clients. And when we do that, not only does it impact our bottom line and make our staff happier, but it allows most of us to reconnect to why we got into practicing law in the first place. I don't know anybody that got into law to write briefs. I don't know anybody that got into law to, you know, meet filing deadlines. They got into the law because they wanted to help people. Regardless of what type of client you serve, you were excited about the idea of using the law to help protect, defend, support, encourage your client. So why not make it more about the clients? Now, I'm curious as the resistance that many firm owners have to really fully buying into the importance of client experience. And, and I say this in the sense that most law firms aren't prioritizing this in their law firm. And maybe it's because most law firms aren't prioritizing this in their law firm, meaning that there's not that competitive need for it yet. But it seems that consumers year over year, their expectations are changing for what they expect from the vendors, partners, you know, lawyers, doctors, you know, whoever it is, the businesses that they uh, do business with. Absolutely. Well, I think there's two major things at play here. One, and you hit it right on the head, Michael, is the idea of the consumer or the client expectation. It used to be, you know, let's roll the clock back 30 years, uh, 40 years. When you were practicing law, at most, you were compared to the other lawyers that your client had dealt with. Now, if you were in a personal injury type situation or a criminal defense type situation, it was highly likely that your client had never dealt with a lawyer. So their expectation, their comparison factor was what they saw on TV, you know, L.A. law, law and order, whatever it may be, depending on your age, what the, the TV show of the day was. That was their only context and comparison. And the big challenge that people had is. Most people watching law on TV think that a case comes in in the first three minutes and the trial with a jury verdict is decided within an hour with some breaks for commercials. And so when you get into a conversation with a client, you're managing expectations that they have that have been designed on a sound studio or in Hollywood, right? So we had that challenge. But in 2020 and beyond, you're not being compared to other lawyers. You're being compared to Amazon and Netflix, and Apple, and Tesla, and Facebook, and all the brands that your clients interact with who have focused on delivering a seamless 24-7-365 anticipatory, convenient relationship that is all wrapped in how you feel and designed to make you feel a certain way. So that's what the competition is. As if that wasn't bad enough, there's another problem, and that is in the typical law firm, no one's responsible for client experience. There isn't somebody who has that listed as their role and responsibility. And as a result, that means no one's responsible for it. In fact, in most corporate settings, and I do a lot of work with corporations, the client experience person reports up to the head of marketing, who then reports up to the CEO. So when the head of marketing is meeting with the CEO, do you think they're talking more about marketing or client experience? Well, they're talking more about marketing because that's their title, even though the head of client experience reports to them. So as you think about your firms in your practice, I'd encourage you to give someone the role and responsibility of overseeing client experience. And don't make this, and I say this respectfully, a paralegal, okay, or a junior support staff person. Make it a partner, ideally a name partner, somebody who that sends a clear message to everybody in the firm, oh, 
this is something that's really important and I want to be involved in this. Every business I've ever worked with, every law firm I've ever worked with, when they have said, we are going to start focusing on client experience. If you're interested in being part of this conversation, come to this meeting, has had unexpected attendees. What I mean by that is there are people in your firm who understand this client experience stuff better than you do, who would love to be involved in a project or initiative to enhance the client experience. They're just waiting for the invitation. So don't worry that if you roll this out, oh, how are we going to get anybody involved? If you genuinely make it available and you put the resources and the time behind it, you will have employees come out of the woodwork. And I think it'll surprise you. Next up, we're revisiting my conversation with renowned media strategist, Ryan Holiday. In season two, we unpacked one of his many best-selling books, The Obstacle is the Way, the timeless art of turning trials into triumph, which is based on the stoic exercise of framing challenges as opportunities. We tend to think of philosophy as this sort of abstract theoretical thing. And it can be that, but it's also, I guess, sort of like the law. It's meant to be applied. It's meant to sort of meet the rubber of the road of real life. And it's probably not a coincidence that uh, a big chunk of, if not most of, of the Stoics in ancient Rome were lawyers in, in some capacity or another. But the idea of Stoicism as a philosophy is basically rooted around this idea that we don't control what happens, we control how we respond. And what I love about the Stoics and why I think they remain relevant today is that the Stoics weren't necessarily known for their brilliant writing or their beautiful writing. They were known for what they actually did, like in real life. You know, Marcus Aurelius is, is not just the emperor of Rome. He's the emperor of Rome during the Antonine Plague. So this idea that it, you know, it seems eerily relevant today, it's for a good reason. Like he was going through what we are going through. So I think what struck me about Stoicism was its simplicity, its straightforwardness, and then ultimately that it is a set of solutions to life problem, life's problems, the daily occurrence of obstacles being, you know, the sort of most important part. Yeah. You know, and then you later go on and you talk about like steadying your nerves and controlling your emotions. But what's what's the difference between the two? I mean, I think they're definitely related to each other. I saw this during the pandemic. Uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who was sort of in a not great spot, like location wise. And I said, hey, you know, come. I've got a house you can stay in. Come stay in the house in Austin. And they were very worried and very scared. And it was very clear to me that this was impairing their ability to just make a fucking decision. Do you know what I mean? And so often what happens under pressure, under difficulty, under stress, is we kind of lock up, we lose our head, we lose our confidence. While this is understandable, it makes the problem worse, right? Like this person just froze. And I think we see this in business, you know, a competitor moves into your space, there's some new regulation, you hire the wrong person. And instead of being able to look at it and decide and then make a move, you're just stuck. You're looking at the unlimited options or you're looking at the fact that you have almost no options. You're looking at all the things that could go wrong and you just sort of lock up. And I think part of the sort of nerve and coolness under pressure, Hemingway defined courage as grace under pressure, is the ability to just be like, okay, here's what we're doing. It might not work out. I might be making a mistake, but I'm going to just do it because what I'm not going to do is just stick here and freeze. And I know you state that if an emotion can't change the condition or the situation that you're dealing with, it's likely an unhelpful emotion. 
Yeah, I think people think that stoicism is the absence of emotions because that's sort of what the, you know, the word means in the English language. I think what the Stoics are really focused on is destructive emotions. Does this emotion make it better or worse? Or does holding on to this emotion longer than I ought to make it better or worse? That's really what we're thinking about. So this is unfair. I've been screwed over. This is not my fault. Why me? I'm never going to recover. They, they may well be true, but are they moving the ball forward in any way? I know you speak a lot about like perceiving and observing and, and, and practicing objectivity, but what are some practical ways for, let's say, business leaders to approach situations more objectively? Well, one of the things I always I find as an exercise is like, what would I tell someone to do in my position? We're very good at telling our friend like, you got to fire this person or you just got to let this client go. You got to admit you were wrong, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then when it comes to us, because we know so much more, we're so much closer to it, we have a lot more trouble with it. So in a way, this is what consultants and advisors and mentors are really good at and really important. You know, you want to be able to see your position with as much distance or objectivity as possible. And sometimes that means just getting out of your own perspective and looking at it from somebody else's perspective. We talked about perception. I want to talk about taking action because ultimately we've talked about how we can change how we think and feel, but it seems that most progress is made not just by, you know, feeling better, but getting better. The mindset is key. Uh, Perception is key, but we're not talking about the secret here, manifestation. Like you have to take action, right? Perception tees up action because by focusing on what's in your control, by focusing on what's positive, by focusing on your response, you now have a direction to go in. But if you don't go in that direction, all you're doing is playing around in your mind. You're not changing anything. So so yes, for the Stokes, it's about action. And for people who are sort of want to know where we're going, where perception action will. There's this great quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, objective judgment now at this very moment. Then he says, unselfish action now at this very moment. Then he gets to the third discipline, which we'll get to of willing acceptance. But I think it's key too. It's not just like action. So this pandemic hits, there's a problem in your business, whatever. It's not just like, hey, what's good for me, right? It's what are my obligations and responsibilities as a leader, as a head of a family, as a as a member of a family, as a member of a community, you know, as a member of an industry. We take action, but it's not just action at the expense of other people to the benefit of oneself. And I know we'll talk about a lot of these things, which I think at times seem theoretical because there's always people listening that are like, that's great, but what do I do? And when we talk about taking action, uh, I love that you mentioned at one point that really courage at its most basic level is really just taking action. But I want to delve deeper into that. Where, where does courage come from? Courage is a key Stoic virtue. Courage is the, yeah, as we said, it's the ability to take action. You know, courage is not having no fear. Courage is taking action despite that fear. Um, and we talked about sort of locking up. That's what tends to happen. People lock up, they, they get in their own heads. But as the person who's the head of a company, again, the head of a family, a member of a community, what are you going to do about this problem? Because the problem is not going to solve itself. I focus on what am I going to do? And I think a, a key part of this is like, What's the smallest thing I can start with right now? As a writer, you, you don't write a book in a sprint. You show up and you write the first page. What can you do right now today? How can you get a little bit better today? And I think that's true also when you find yourself 
you know, in some massive hole. You know, you get screwed over by a partner, your your business goes way down, you have to declare bankruptcy. How do you come back from that? One step at a time. I mean, it's. I wish there was a magical transformative solution, but it's really a one step at a time kind of thing. And so much of what we talk about is really just what what type of behavior, what type of mindset, what type of perception is, is going to be the most productive for you. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And there's a part where you talk about just preparing for none of it to work. So if someone's going to prepare for none of it to work, how do they balance that with, with also wanting to apply a significant enough amount of effort to it actually being successful? Well, I, I tried to set it up so it's perception, then you take the action and so, okay, you've thought about it in this creative way. You've applied all your resiliency and determination and creativity to it. Hopefully, most of the time, that's going to be successful. You know, there were people who, you know, maybe they owned a restaurant. And so in March of 2020, they pivoted, they did this, they did this. But it may just be that now, fundamentally, the economics of the industry or the region or the area that they're in, it's just not viable anymore, right? And What I don't want that person to do is to take that so personally to so identify with how they've been doing things that they think they need to hold on to it forever when it may well be that what's called for is a tactical retreat here and a a new business or a new way of doing things or just because you've gone down a road pretty far doesn't mean you go down that road forever. What's also important is like, look, life will kick your ass. Like you don't win every time. And so if you are so determined and so persistent that you never have the ability to just accept, okay, this didn't go how I wanted it to go. This didn't work out. You're going to end up enduring something longer than you actually should endure it. So when I talk about prepare for nothing to work, that leads into that third discipline of stoicism, which Marcus Aurelius defines as the willing acceptance of external events or things that are outside of your control. So it seems like at the end of the day, there's always going to be more obstacles, whatever this year holds and the future years and so on. So what are some of the best ways you recommend people prepare themselves for future obstacles? So I talk in the book about James Stockdale, who was in a prison camp in in Vietnam. He shot down the highest ranking American taken prisoner. And uh, Jim Collins talks about this in Good to Great, but it's sort of a famous story from Stockdale. Stockdale is asked, you know, who really has the most trouble in the camp? And he says, oh, that's easy. The optimists. He says, the people who said, this will be over by Christmas. We'll be out of here in two weeks. The war is about to end. Those people got their heart broken and their hopes dashed over and over and over and over again. Victor Frankl talks about this in uh, in Man's Search for Meaning as well. He talks about a prisoner who was convinced like on April 4th, 1943, they would all be freed. And uh, quite hauntingly, that guy dies on April 4th. Um, he had just enough hope to get to that point. And then something that's outside of his control you know, doesn't happen. And now they can't survive. So Stockdale says the optimists are crushed. So he says the key is unflinching acceptance of the situation at hand. No sugarcoating, no fantasy, no magical thinking. It is what it is. It's going to last a long time. It's not up to me. But he says at the same time, he said, I knew that if I did survive, I would turn this into an event that in retrospect, I would never try to change, that I would never give up. 
And so that's, to me, that's the core of stoicism. It's not, oh, everything's awesome. Everything's great. I'm going to get through everything. It's like, no, shit is real. Shit is raw. Shit is hard. But if I'm lucky enough to make it through, if I can hang on, I'm going to try my best to hang on. If I do get through, I'm going to have learned a lot about myself, about my business, about my life, about the world. And I'm not going to waste the fact that I did survive, the fact that I did experience these lessons, and I'm going to be profoundly better for what has happened. Next up, we revisit one of our most popular podcasts where I sat down with Tim Grover, performance coach to some of the most elite athletes on the planet, including Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. His latest book, Winning, reveals a no-nonsense approach for anybody who wants to succeed at the highest level. But what motivated him to write this book in the first place? Well, you know what? I didn't want to do a workout book. So everybody was taught me, obviously I was, that's what I'm most famous for is the individuals that I've worked with. But workouts change so often and everybody wanted to know how these individuals, they got to be at the top and stay at the top. And even when they fell, how they got back to the top. And I was like, and mindset was too of a general topic. Everyone loves to talk about mindset, mindset, mindset. Well, what the hell is mindset? I needed, I need a better definition. So instead of mindset, it's the winnings, the winning mind. There's a huge difference between just a general mindset and having a mindset of actually winning. So what my individuals did, they just constantly won over and over and over again, not just in their sports, but in business and whatever, whatever they did. So being around those individuals, being able to study, ask some questions, see things that nobody else was able to see, having conversations that nobody else was privy to. I mean, literally to be able to sit down with Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Derek Jeter, and just, just listening to them talk. No cameras around, no nothing. And how competitive that they were, the things that were coming up. And I was like, you know what? There is a really big misconception of what it takes to be successful and what it takes to really be classified as a winner. And I'm known as that individual that I say what others won't say and I see what others aren't willing to see. So when I wrote this book with my co-author, Sherry Wank, I wanted to put the real language of winning, what it really, really takes. It's not about the parade. It's not about the streamers. It's not about the confetti. It's about the road that you take, the amount of time you spend to capture that win and how quickly that win can be taken away from you. Because everybody thinks once you become a winner, you're always a winner. But no one understands. Most people are actually afraid to win. And I give the reasons of why they're afraid to win. When you wrote this book, who was this book for? Because were you trying to convert anybody or were you just trying to reinforce people? Because as I was reading this, I mean, I probably was nodding along the whole time. And then I spoke to a few colleagues of mine that read it and they, you know, they didn't like it. They didn't like the tone of it. They, you know, they, I found that either, you know, there's some people that just, the, the true competitors, they love it. Like it almost tells their life story in a way. And then there's other people who read it and say, I don't agree with that. That seems a little harsh. Well, you know what? This is where I said when you when you read this book, when you read my posts on Instagram, when you listen to me talk, take your emotions out of it. Just take your emotions out of it. Cuz most decisions are made 
because you get emotional about something or something strikes you in a certain way or brings up a bad memory. This book is for everyone. I always say, listen, I'm not for everyone. I should be, but I'm not. Not everybody has this intensity. Not everybody has this desire to be the best. Not everybody has this desire to compete, not just to compete, but to compete to win. You know, we're, we're in a place now where people are so worried about stepping on people's toes and winning requires you to step on their throats by your results. And for a lot of people, it is harsh. It, it is harsh, you know, because if you have the mentality of a winner and you can actually execute at, at it, you separate yourself from the pack. So you get to see, you get exposed. You get exposed to not being in the middle. You get exposed to the decisions you make, the things that you things that you say. You're putting yourself away from the pack. And once people start to pull themselves away from the pack and real realize how much little protection or support they actually have and how much it's really on them, they're like, yeah, this this might be a little this might be a little bit too much. So it's easy for them to kind of go back into the middle of the pack. When the first book, Relentless, it was like everybody's dirty little secret. People would hand it to, hey, I need you to read this book underneath the table. And it's just like people don't want to admit that's who they really are. Because in society, if you're if you're built that way or you think that way, you're not a nice person or people have perceptions of you. And this has got nothing to do with being nice, being hated, being good, being bad. No matter what decision you make, no matter who you're with, some people are always going to be with you. Some people are not going to be with you. Some people are going to agree with your decisions. Others aren't going to agree with your decisions. This is about you standing up for what you believe in and going after what's important to you. What do your wins mean for you? For a lot of people, it's financial. For other people, it could be raising their kids. For others, it could be the charitable things that they have, being the best school teacher, being the best, you know, whatever it is. You have to define what winning means to you. And if you take that mentality, you'll see that if it's that important to you, this book is you. I want to touch on the process of winning. So Matt Frazier was on the podcast, five-time CrossFit Games champion. And I, I was asking him, I'm like, you know, Matt, you have this you know, this immense drive to compete. Um, what about the training? He's like, I hated the training. Uh, he's like, every minute of every day had to be managed from when I went to sleep, from when I ate, from when I trained. He's like, it's miserable. But and so, I, you know, I asked him, I was like, so why did you do it? You know, he's like, well, because I crave that result. That's it. I mean, there's no, what else is there? What else is there left to say? Training is hard, all right? It, it, it is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Winning is hard, all right? Eating properly is hard. Saving money is uh, investing. All, the, all these things, that be, it is supposed to be hard. Everybody's looking for that easy path. Everybody's looking for those steps. That's why people, when, when I was writing the book, one of the big things that, you know, Sherry and I, we were discussing with a publisher and other individuals, everybody was saying, you got to put steps in there because steps sell books. Five easy steps, you know, 10 steps to greatness, five steps to success. You're talking about the most fittest human being in the world, all right? Have him run up a flight of steps, all right? I don't care what kind of shape you're in. That, 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 that shit is hard. 
and everyone's looking for those easy steps. There are no easy steps. No, we're trying to make everything easy. When I go to work out, you know, I used to see advertisements all the time about, you know, work out in the comfort and ease of your own home. If a workout is comfortable and easy, it's not a workout. It's it's not it's not a workout, but that's what that's what sells. That's and motivation sells too. That's why there's so many individuals out there that sell motivation because what when they are selling motivation, that means you're going to keep buying. I don't sell motivation. I sell elevation, all right? And the big difference between the two is, you know, exactly what Matt said, all right? Motivated individual, you have to constantly keep selling uh, motivation is, man, you got to, that person, you got to convince every single day that, you know, yes, the workouts are hard. It is nasty. It is going to be unpolished. I have to manage all, all this, all those individuals. When you sell elevation, Elevation is internal. It's not external. Motivation is external. All right. Elevation is internal. They know when they get to the gym, when they get up, yes, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to be nasty. It's going to be tough. I know it's going to be painstaking. But they take that accountability on themselves. They take that accountability on themselves. And there's a huge difference between motivation and elevation. Motivation is that sugar high. It's that initial sugar high. You get, you get really spiked up. I see people that go to these events all the time and they come in and they're all pumped up and they're like, yes, I, yeah, I, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. But they have no direction of where they're going in. You know, I tell you the most popular, when I give my presentations, I don't want a standing ovation. When I get done, I want complete silence in the room. I want complete silence in the room because then I know those individuals they truly, when they say they're ready to run through a wall, they're going to run through that wall. They are going to run through that wall because that's something that's going to last, that's going to stay with them. That's going to stay with them. And winning stays with you. Your wins stay with you. No one can ever take those wins away from you. Nobody can ever take your elevated mindset away from you. They can take your motivation away from you because motivation, you got it through somebody else. But what you earned on your own, no one can take that away from you. You know, there's a chapter when you talk about, you know, the, the, the price of winning and the, in this idea of balance. And it's interesting. I know you give a lot of examples and a lot of the athletes and the entrepreneurs you work with, but you were right there with them also making a lot of these sacrifices. And in particular, one of the stories you tell was the one with, with your daughter. And uh, if you're open to sharing it, I mean, me reading it, I have two young girls. So I'm reading this stuff and it's, I imagine it's not an easy story to tell. It's not. It's still difficult now. I mean, everybody's had to make this decision. I mean, I'm sitting there. For my work, I travel constantly, constantly, because my clients require me to be in certain places. I got I got to go. It's a commitment I made for myself. It's a commitment I, I made to them. It's a commitment I made to winning. So, you know, I was packing. I packed my own stuff. My daughter, My daughter walks in. And she goes, Daddy, why do you travel so much? And I said, you know, honey, this is how, you know, I take care of you. This is how I take care of mom. This is, you know, this is how I put food on the table. And she goes, Dad, if I eat less, will you stay home more? You know, in the Hollywood ending, everybody I would unpack my bag. I would have stayed. We'd have gone out for ice cream. I kept packing. Those are the decisions 
that winning requires you to make. Not the easy ones. Anybody can make the easy ones. That's why everybody doesn't win. Because those are the decisions winning is going to test you with. And I later on, I had that conversation with her. And I thought I had done things wrong in her eyes. Find out that before I could even finish a conversation, she goes, Dad, I understand. You set an example for me. To go with, go after what's important to you. And she goes, if you didn't, she goes, I would have felt bad. And she, because because of those decisions you made, I've benefited so much more now. So that's why I said, when you, if you're going to make those hard decisions, you're going to do those things, you, you have to go get those wins. There's so many individuals that go out there, they don't get those wins because it takes a different mindset. It requires you to be different. You know, I said, you know, winning requires you to be different and different scares people. Like a lot of people were, are scared to make that decision. You know, after all these years, it still affects me now. Well, it still affects me now, but you're never going to have what that win means to you if you don't have the ability to make the unpopular decisions. You know, there's going to be people who hear stories like this, they'll read the book, and they'll hear about these sacrifices and say, well, why would I ever want to win then? Why, you know, I'm not willing to do things like this. I would never do that. What do you think they're missing out on? The way Kobe Bryant described winning, he said, winning is everything. There's win. Listen, we, we have a chance to win every single day. Every single day there are wins around us. A lot of us can't even see them. They can't even, they can't even see them. You miss out on opportunities when you don't talk to individuals, when you don't look at individuals in the eye, when you don't acknowledge an individual, when you don't simply speak. There's wins around us every single day, but you have to go get them. Yeah, you have to go get them. First, you have to be able to see them. First, you have to be able to acknowledge them. Winning gives you a feeling that you can't, you just can't describe you really, you really, you really can't. I mean, you watch your favorite sports team, or you watch your favorite performer, or whether, you know, we watch all these awards uh, for you know for actors, actresses, business people, sports people, and you know, if your sports team wins, you're up there. Why not have that feeling for yourself? Yeah, it may not be in the sports industry. How about being your own cheerleader and putting that same effort into something that's that important to you? And see how see how that feels. Everyone talks about the athlete, you know, how much sacrifice they made, how talented they are, what they go through. Well, you can do the same thing. It may not be in that endeavor. I get this people all the time when I work with, especially with the quarterbacks I work with, people, you get these, oh, I could do that. No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> you know? It's just like there's certain things, but find what you can do and go do it to the best of your ability. Well, don't try because try gives you an out. Go do it. 
I got no problem with an individual who did everything they possibly could and failed. I have a problem with an individual who didn't. To close out this lineup of game-changing authors, we're looking back on my conversation with Kim Scott, who's led teams at both Apple and Google and has coached the CEOs of some of the most successful companies in the world. From these unique perspectives, Kim drew the groundbreaking conclusions that led to her best-selling book, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. Fundamentally, the reason why I wrote the book stems from uh, an early management experience I had where I came into the office, it was a small software company, about 65 people, and about 10 people had sent me the same article. And you know when 10 people send you the same article, you better stop what you're doing and read it. And the article was about how people would rather have a boss who is a real asshole, but very competent, than one who's really nice, but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because they think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. And I think for an awful lot of people, there is this false dichotomy that you're either super successful in a, in a bad human being or you're a really good human being and kind of a pushover. And that is a false dichotomy. Uh, and so I think a lot of my management career has, has been about breaking free of that false dichotomy. And certainly writing radical candor is about breaking free of that false dichotomy. And the sense that I got you know, when I was reading the book is it just, to me, it seems like how to make progress, right? As a leader, as a boss, because I, I believe at our core, many times we want the same things. I mean, we want the organization to be successful, the team members to be successful and, and everybody to succeed. But sometimes there's breakdowns when things are not going on track or somebody is not performing the expectations. So I guess just you know, to, to really kick this off, what does the term radical candor actually mean? Yeah. So, so radical candor means the ability to care personally about someone at the same time that you challenge them directly. And to me, that's the essence of being a good boss. Uh, it is really, it's, it's actually the essence of having a good relationship, period. But in particular, it's important when you're the boss because it's your job to tell people uh, when things are going really well, it's your job to offer praise, but it's also your job to tell them when things are not going so well. And you always want to do both things in a way that shows that you care about the person. And why is that so radical? What's so radical about care personally, challenge directly? Like I've worked with a lot of different leaders uh, in the course of my career, and I've never met anyone who says, yeah, I don't really care about my people, so I'm going to be a great boss. So I think it's worth thinking for a moment, like what is it that moves us down on that care personally dimension? And I think the problem here starts when we're about 18, 19, 20 years old, and we're right at that moment when our egos are maximally fragile, but our personas are beginning to solidify. And right at that moment, we get our first job and someone comes along and says, be professional. And I think for a lot of people, we sort of unconsciously translate that to mean leave your emotions, leave your real identity, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly care personally about others when you yourself are showing up like some kind of robot. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is, is on the challenge directly dimension. And the problem here begins not when we're 18 years old, but when we're 18 months old. And we have a parent who says some version of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And now, congratulations, you're the boss and it's your job to say it. And this is hard. It's really hard to undo training 
that's been pounded into us since we were 18 months old. So that's why I call it radical candor, because it's rare and it's hard. But when we can do it, we're more successful and happier. As Kim describes, the factors of caring personally and challenging directly exist on two separate axes. Radical candor happens in the quadrant where the two coincide. But I wanted Kim to dive deeper into the other three quadrants, the ones that fall outside of radical candor. Maybe the best way to define radical candor is to say what it's not. So very often we do challenge directly, but we forget to show that we care personally. And that I call obnoxious aggression. Uh, when I first started writing the book, I called that the asshole quadrant. And, and I stopped doing that for a very important reason, because when I did it, people would, would use the radical candor framework and they would start writing names in boxes. And I beg of you, please don't do that with the radical candor ideas. This is not like another Myers-Briggs personality test. Use radical candor as like a, a compass to drive conversations to a better place. Okay, so obnoxious aggression is what happens when you challenge, but you forget to show that you care. Now, very often when we realize we've been a jerk, Rather than moving the right direction on the care personally dimension of radical candor, we go the wrong way on challenge directly. And we say, oh, I didn't really mean it. It doesn't really matter. But of course, I did mean it and it does matter. And then we wind up in the worst place of all, manipulative insincerity. And that's where backstabbing behavior, the false apology, political behavior, passive aggressive behavior kind of creeps into the workplace. And it's fun to tell stories about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity because that's where kind of the office drama takes place. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people make the vast majority of mistakes in this last, in this third area, which is where we do show that we care personally because we're nice people. But because we're so afraid of hurting somebody's feelings, we don't tell them something they'd be better off knowing and we don't challenge directly. And then you, that's what I call ruinous empathy. And that's the most common mistake of all. So with ruinous empathy, every time I think about this one, I always think about like week one of American Idol. And it's when they have all the contestants on and it's, it, it, it's largely, you know, people are laughing at them. They're like generally not very good singers and so on. And I always thought watching that, I'm thinking, no one ever told these people, right? That perhaps like it, maybe they, they had room for improvement and that they could hone their craft or maybe that they, they weren't in the, you know, they weren't destined to be a great singer. And because of that, here they are on stage, week one American Idol, and you've got the country laughing at them. And it's interesting because like you said, you know, so many people fall into like the trap of ruinous empathy where they do care personally about something someone and they feel like that because I care personally, I don't want to hurt your feelings. Why do you believe that's so common? And what's a way around that? Well, I think it's, it's common because like for many things, we have a negativity bias. We tend to learn lessons from making mistakes. And so we tend to focus more on mistakes than on, than on what works. And I think this is especially true when it comes to social interactions, so we pay attention to the sort of mistakes that we make more than the successes, actually. Most often, when you offer radical candor instead of ruinous empathy to someone, when you tell someone, hey, <laughs> stick with your day job or get some singing lessons or whatever, then it worked. People appreciate it. Nine times out of 10, people actually really appreciate radical candor. But one time out of 10, 
you will have a radical candor train wreck. And you'll tell somebody something and you'll mean it well, and you'll maybe even say it really nicely, and the person will be enraged at you. And very often, I think we optimize for the one time out of 10. We optimize for the radical. We, we're very conservative and we, we're unwilling to make a mistake. So I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is that we optimize for short term rather than long term. In the short term, when you tell somebody something that stings a little bit in the moment, it stings a little bit in the moment, even if it's in their long-term best interest to know, we, we hate to see that short-term sting. So, so very often what's right in front of our faces looms so much larger than what's just a mile down the road. You mentioned that the clarity of our guidance oftentimes gets measured at the other person's ear and not just at our mouths. So what are some ways to, to just make sure that whether it's you know uh, positive praise or, or criticism, that that message lands with as much clarity as possible? It's important to remember that praise needs to be specific and sincere and criticism needs to be kind and clear. And you want to go in to those conversations in the right mindset. So you want to make sure that you're being humble about what you're saying. The reason I call it candor and not truth is to me, at least candor says, here's what I see. I'm curious to know what you see. Uh, whereas if I say, I'm going to tell you the truth, I'm sort of implying that I have the objective reality and whatever you think doesn't matter. Not that I'm opposed to truth, but candor to me feels more humble. You want to state your intention to be helpful. You want to do it right away. If the purpose of praise is to tell people what to do more of and the purpose of criticism is to tell them what to do less of, why wait? You want to do it immediately. In the old world, I would have said you should do it in person. In the new world, I would say you should do it over video. There's a hierarchy of mediums. But the key point to remember is that something like 85, 90% of communication is nonverbal. So you want to be able to see how the other person is responding and adjust accordingly. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. And you want to be able to hear the other person. If you can't do it over video, you want to have a phone call. It needs to be synchronous. Don't offer feedback over text or email or something like that. Uh, you, you want to, as we've already talked about, you want to praise in public uh, and you want to criticize in private. And last but certainly not least, you don't want to offer praise or criticism about someone's personality attributes because personality attributes are very difficult to change. You want to offer sort of situation behavior impact. That's the, the model developed by the Center for Creative Leadership. And so what I mean by that is you want to describe the situation, you want to describe the behavior of the work product, and you want to show the impact that what the person did or said or the way they did or said it had on others and on the team's success. And when you do that, like when Cheryl said in the meeting, when you said um, every third word, it made you sound stupid. There's a world of difference between that and saying, Kim, the problem with you is that you're so stupid. You know, like that would have been discouraging. So, but I could change the ums. So you want to make sure you're talking about things that people can address. So, so like in the example I gave before of the, the perception of this guy is negative. That was a big problem because he felt like that was a core personality attribute. So I needed to sort of show specifically what he was doing and when he was getting it right. And that was what allowed him to present a different side of himself to the team. So that's sort of your mindset going in. 
But there's an even more important thing than what you say. And that is paying attention to how it lands for the other person. I call this gauging the feedback. You want to make sure that you understand how the other person is interpreting what you're saying. Because you may be saying one thing and odds are they're hearing something entirely different. I imagine team members may have different reactions to this type of feedback. So I wanted to know what this can recommend to help the other party feel at ease and hear your message the way you intend it. Feedback is measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. So you're going to get, well, there's a million different responses you might get when you offer feedback, but let's boil it down to three. One, the person might be sad. And this is usually what people fear. This is usually why people don't give feedback because they're afraid the other person will be sad. And so if the other person seems upset or if they even begin to cry, a few things that can help. One is realize that this is your cue to move up on the care personally dimension. It's not your cue to move the wrong direction on challenge directly, but you do want to take, you don't want to ignore the emotion. You want to take a moment to address and acknowledge the emotion. And it's the same thing, by the way, if the person gets angry, which is the other emotion that we're often afraid of and the, the sort of rationalization for not, I, I don't want to tell them this because they might get mad. Again, if the person is sad or mad, it's your cue to move up on the care personally dimension. Uh, things you can do, very tactical things you can do to deal with these emotions. One is just to give voice to the emotion. Don't ignore it. Say, it seems like I've made you upset. It seems like you are upset or angry. Name the, and be humble because very often, we misinterpret each other's emotions. So for example, if you're talking to me and I burst into tears, it's probably not because I'm sad. It's probably because I'm angry. But you know, I'm a woman, I'm not allowed to show I'm angry, so my instinct is to cry instead of yell. Uh, not always a helpful instinct, but make sure that you understand the other person's emotions. So that's one. Another thing you can do, very tactical bit of advice, bring a bottle of water for the other person if you're meeting in person. Because sometimes just the act of like picking up the bottle, taking the cap off the bottle, taking a sip of water gives the other person an opportunity to calm down because they don't want to be angry or sad any more than you want them to be angry or sad. So that can help. Another thing you could do, which never is a bad thing to say, is how can I help? How can I help? Just rem remind the person that your instinct, your goal in having this conversation is to be helpful. And talk to other people about what helps them. These are hard moments. Now, these are the moments we fear. But what, what usually happens? What usually happens is the third thing. Person doesn't hear you. Sort of like I did to Cheryl. Oh, it's no big deal. I'm busy. Forget about the spe speech coach BS. That is when you have to forget about care personally for a moment. That's when you have to move further out on the challenge directly dimension than you might be comfortable moving. In fact, when I was writing Radical Candor, I sent that story that's it's in the book. I sent it to Cheryl and I said, is this how you remember it? And she said, gosh, did I really say that you sounded stupid? That's so mean. I can't believe I said that. And I said, yes, you did. She's like, wow, that was, that was intense. So it was hard for her. It was harder than it seemed for her to move out on the 
on the challenge directly dimension. It's hard for all of us. Very few people are eager to go there, but you've got to go there. It's your job to be clear when someone's not hearing you. I want to give a huge thank you to every single guest who's joined me so far on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Attorney.com.